What a great joy it is for us to hear the songs and the sounds of the season. I don't know about you, but that's one of the things that I love perhaps the most about Christmas is that in the marketplace, we hear songs of the Messiah. That you go to stores and you, you just make your way around and even on the radio you hear. And by the way, I probably need to give credit where credit is due. Uh, Dewana does such an amazing job on our piano every week, but I want to introduce the boys to you. So I, I know y'all saw that and appreciated that. They may not have even seen it. It just simply builds you guys as Dewana and the boys. So Jimmy Brown and Dr. Ralph Kaler playing as well. If you have a Bible, I invite your attention to Luke chapter 1. We're going to get there in a moment. We're going to look at Mary's response to the announcement. So Luke chapter 1, as we continue this Advent series, as we continue to consider the promise of Christmas. And we've talked about that, and I've said it to you before, as we consider this notion of the promise of Christmas, we, we see some beautiful things. So Advent is just the four weeks leading up to Christmas. It's the four Sundays, and we reflect on the birth of Jesus, but also his second coming and we've said that many times but this year we're looking to these promises and we started out by looking at hope and the promise that we have that in the midst of darkness he's brought light and if you've noticed a pattern just very quickly the thought is very simple we've looked at an old testament passage and then the fulfillment in the new testament so as we looked at hope isaiah's words carried forward today we've seen the same thing in our scripture reading but we looked at hope we looked at love and today we look at joy and so as we turn to this promise of joy, I want you to just jot this down somewhere. We'll put it on the screen. You see, when we look at these promises, we're looking to see that not only what his promise brings to us, we're also looking at what these promises ask of us. You may want to jot that down. Because Christmas doesn't just bring hope to you. It demands hope from you toward others. And so as we think about that sort of call to action, I hope that you just don't go through the motions. Well, we sang familiar Christmas songs and we heard familiar tunes. No, I hope that the Word of God and the story of Christmas would not just be an event that happened in uh, the Judean uh, countryside years ago, but it would be something that would impact you today, that it would draw out from each of us our very best and that it would lead us to God. You see, we look to the story to find these promises and we need to try to see how this promise of joy and God's penchant for lifting up the lowly. One of the things that I see in Luke's account is that over and over again, we see people who are disenfranchised, people who are marginalized. They're on the outskirts. They are not the ones that we would consider to be the first choice. They wouldn't be first picked or selected because of anything regarding themselves. But God, in a unique way, has a, a great penchant for lifting up the lowly. And as he does, what I want you to see is this. I want us to listen to the Christmas story with fresh ears and hopefully see that it tells us about God, about joy, and what it tells us today about God's will for our own lives. You see, I, I want to add to that. I believe that one key for you and me to experience joy is to lift the lowly in our lives. Let me say it again. Lifting the lowly is a key to experiencing joy because it mimics the heart of God. And we're going to, to see this hopefully in a very unique way as we see the story unfold. So this third week of Advent, this third candle that we light uh, is the pink candle. It represents Mary and the announcement of the angel to Mary. And Mary's beautiful poem that we'll read in a moment called the Magnificat. It simply means to magnify. She hears this announcement and, and comes to a place of absolute overwhelming joy exuding from her life but it wasn't always that way at this point in the Christmas narrative we see this Mary has heard from the angel Gabriel that she's going to have a child by the Holy Spirit uh, Gabriel comes to her and announces to her she's going to have a child do you think Mary was overwhelmed with joy at that news perhaps not at that moment 
You see, Mary was 12, 13, 14 years old. If you understand Jewish culture of that day, this young girl from this uh, tucked away place, Nazareth, was was, uh, just following along in some respects in the footsteps of what everyone else would do. You see, the life expectancy for a young woman in uh, Judea would have been somewhere probably around uh, 35 to 38 years old. So as soon as a young girl came to a place of being childbearing in age they would marry and they would begin having children and so uh, you would marry at 12 13 14 years old and so this young teenage girl is already betrothed to Joseph and by the way if you don't understand that process fully I want to invite you to our our Wednesday evening study we're talking about the Galilean wedding we kicked that off this week but it was much more than an engagement they had already made a covenant commitment to one another and he promised I'm going to go away but I'll come back for you just like Jesus made that promise to the disciples and so they are married but they've not been together physically they've not consummated the marriage he will come back and get her and take her away to the bridal chamber that he has created for them and they will live there together and there'll be a wedding celebration but we're in this period of anticipation so they've not yet been together and Gabriel comes to her and speaks to her and says you're going to conceive and give birth to a child But do not fear because you've found favor with God and God's hand is upon this process. But you need to understand that in Deuteronomy that those who were betrothed to be married, if they were caught in adultery, it was a death sentence. They could be stoned to death. The the future bridegroom could have her killed. He could divorce her if he wanted to and walk away, but she could be killed for adultery. And so what Gabriel has brought to this young teenage girl is a death sentence. Now, she knew more than that because he began by saying, you found favor and God's hand is upon this and he'll keep you safe. So so don't, don't, you know, get lost in that. But she had heard all of her life and maybe even had known of someone who had been put away because of unfaithfulness. So as, as we think about this, we can't possibly imagine that immediately she was happy about it. It's so far outside the norm. And as we think about this death sentence pronouncement from God's law, Mary knows that God has promised to be with her. And she immediately leaves. She doesn't tell her parents. She lives in Nazareth. In a moment, I'll show you on a map where that is, and you can kind of get a handle. I I shared with my Sunday school class, as a child, I was taught to believe in the entire Bible. Were you? I figured I'd get an amen. I was taught, though, to believe in the Bible from Genesis to maps. I mean, I never looked at them or cared about them, but they were there, so God must have put them there. Those maps in the back of my Bible were important. And now as I've gotten older, and especially now that I've traveled to the Holy Land, I've experienced the uniqueness of this. She was from Nazareth, and she immediately left, and she went to the home of a relative named Elizabeth. It was an eight-day journey. She walked... And, and slept there along the way for eight days as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old. I, I get nervous if I thought about my 14-year-old walking a half mile to the 7-Eleven down the corner of the street. I can't imagine an eight-day journey away by herself with this news mulling over in her heart and in her mind. She had time to think about it. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, so get into the story. Be there with her. This young girl has been visited by an angel. She's overwhelmed, not knowing what to do. And so she goes to her relative's home because the angel told her that John the Baptist would be born to this relative, Elizabeth. So she did all that she knew to do. She left and went to the country of Judea outside of Jerusalem to see Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth is too old to have a child and she has been barren. She has been praying, but God gave to her the promise of a child and John the Baptist was conceived between this elderly priest, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth. And when she arrives at the home, you know the story. They see each other. Elizabeth is about six months along in her pregnancy and John the Baptist in her womb leaps for joy at the arrival of Mary and now Jesus. In fact, the Bible said something curious that I'd never really focused on before. This is a side note, but it says that John the Baptist was promised to be filled with the Holy Spirit before his birth. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would rest upon people, but then would leave. But here, John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that begs the question, was Elizabeth filled too? 
You better believe she was because the child in her womb was filled with the Spirit. And the Bible says that not only John, but Zechariah and Elizabeth as well. God is up to something. 400 years of quiet silence. Nobody has said a word since the days of Isaiah promising that it's coming. And Malachi and other post-exilic prophets. And one day a Messiah is going to come and we're just waiting. And we know that Antiochus has walked into the temple and he killed a pig and splattered the blood in the temple to desecrate it. And the Maccabees stood and they they pushed back Rome's presence and they rededicated the temple. And you say, what does that have to do with us? Isn't that a Jewish thing? Well, John chapter 12, Jesus was at the temple for the feast of dedication. Jesus understood it. And so all of this darkness, all of this silence sets the stage for Gabriel to emerge and to speak to this young virgin. And he speaks to her and says she's going to have a child. And she goes to Elizabeth's house and Elizabeth feels the baby in her womb leap for joy. And immediately Elizabeth cries out to Mary many words that you're probably familiar with. In fact, if you grew up in in a more liturgical environment of some sort, you probably heard this. We'll put it on the screen. It was simply this. She said, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. You see, it was the response of Elizabeth that Mary is finally able to experience joy. I imagine that those eight days were painstaking as all of the hopes and the fears, all of the anxiety and the struggle, all of the doubt and uncertainty that she could be killed or divorced or put away or shamed and shame her whole family, she did not know. And immediately when Elizabeth speaks, the Messiah is here. God has done something great. Oh, folks, the wonder of this brings joy to Mary's heart, and it ought to bring joy to our hearts. It's this response that leads her to sing what we know as the Magnificat. We'll come back to Mary in just a moment. It was 55 years ago, last Sunday, that the one of the very first primetime cartoons aired on television. Anybody know what it was? Some of you have guessed because of my treat. Y'all like my Christmas tree? I I was walking through the parlor last week and I saw this tree and I said, I've got to put it up here. And I put it up here and I put notes all around it. Do not move this tree. The pastor's using it as a sermon illustration. I was scared to death somebody would walk in and say, why is that raggedy tree on our Stage. We've got all this beautifully adorned decorations all around the building, and then that. I'm scared to do it, but on the bottom you can push it and it'll play the Snoopy theme. I've come through here all week long and made it play. I I won't do it now. Charlie Brown aired on December the 9th, 1950, or 65. It was 55 years ago. It was the longest running cartoon Christmas special. In, in the history of television except for one. Anybody want, well, in fact, we got a picture. I think we got maybe a Charlie Brown picture. Maybe. Yeah, there he is. Charlie Brown went and he picked the tree. He was with Linus. And, and, and let me tell you this. Now we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cable channels. Back then there were three, right? Half of all Americans that December night in 1965, half of all Americans watched a Charlie Brown Christmas special. There's only one that has run longer. Anybody want to take a guess at what it is? Good guess. Go to the next one. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It started in 1964, so 56 years ago. So it it was a year longer, but both of those have been seen over and over again. It it is estimated that somewhere between 9 and 11 million people watch both of these every single year. And it's like new generations get to see these and experience them. But as we think about these, it's it's pretty amazing to me. How many of you have seen a Charlie Brown Christmas special? All right, you know uh, about that story. And and you know about Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer that showed in 1964. Well, both of these, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Charlie Brown Christmas Special, have something in common with Mary and the Magnificat. Now, I want you to think about this. It's that God 
uses base things. He takes the lowly, the disenfranchised, those that are on the outskirts, and he lifts them up and uses them so that he gets honor and glory for it. Now, let me set the stage. Charlie Brown was set and charged with picking out the tree for the school Christmas pageant. And he goes to the lot to pick out a tree, and all of us have probably had that experience. Have you ever gone there and you look and you look and you make sure that there's no gaping holes on the backside, and you look all around it and you shake it to make sure that needles don't don't go anywhere and then finally you just get tired of it and you go to Walmart and you buy one that's got pre-lit you know lights and you stick it in the box every year anybody or am I just being confessional some of you are purists and you go cut down your own tree well for all those lumberjacks that are in here God bless you but I'm not that guy right here right now Charlie Brown goes there to look and in looking well let's take a look I don't know, Linus. I just don't know. Well, I guess we better concentrate on finding a nice Christmas tree. I suggest we try those stitch lights, Charlie Brown. This really brings Christmas clothes to a person. Fantastic. seem to fit the modern spirit. I don't care. We'll decorate it and it'll be just right for our play. Besides, I think it needs me. Charlie Brown says, I think this tree needs me. And Charlie Brown has bemoaned the commercialization of Christmas and he says we need to simplify and make it about what it's all about and you know the storyline that Lucy has bullied him over and over again and snatched the football out of the way and you know that Lucy's going to give him grief and that's what happened. They come back to the stage and they come back to the school and everybody laughs at Charlie Brown and says you've ruined everything, you've ruined Christmas. But we see a turn in just a moment. Well, what I want you to see is very simply that, that this theme of selecting that, that other people would cast aside, selecting that in some unique way that everybody else rejects is sort of a metaphor for this young girl, Mary, from Nazareth. And as we think about it, here's what I want you to get out of it. God is concerned with the rejected and the nobody. He's rejecting, uh, he is his concern with the marginalized and those that feel pushed down. I'll, I'll say it this way. He chooses to lift up and bless those that others have pushed aside. And aren't you thankful? God takes us in our lowly estate. He didn't look at you because of how smart you are or how good looking you are or, or how much ability you have. No, God loves you because of his character, not yours. He didn't love you because you loved him first. No, you love God because he loved you first. He reached into our world and he continues to do this very thing. He sees potential where we see brokenness. Write that down somewhere. Somebody today needs to hear that word because it's not just in us for salvation, not just in people, but certainly it starts there. But God sees potential in the midst of brokenness. The broken body of Jesus would lead to the salvation and redemption of all. And for you and for me, 2020 is about as broken as a year could get. I mean, everything that we can imagine went out the window because it's been unimaginable. And in the midst of that brokenness, I believe God sees potential. I see, I, I see potential for a church growing and developing, not just Hardy Street, but the church. I see people sharing joy, sharing love, sharing hope, and others coming to find an anchor for their souls in the midst of chaos, in the midst of all the turbulence, finding light as they grope in darkness and say, what's going to happen? People are living in fear today like never ever ever before I've watched it over and over again and, and there's valid room in some respects for that I, I understand that the hospital had here ha, had somewhere around 10 or 11 beds available last week and, and, and that was to say but Forest General and Merritt and in other places that they're just overwhelmed and overrun do we really have the message of hope or not 
If we do, then I hope that you would go with me to Nazareth and you would go with me to Judea and you would sing the song of Mary because you would recognize that the hope that God has extended to you, he wants to extend through you because God sees potential when we see brokenness. Listen to these words from Luke chapter 1. Some of you are saying, is our pastor going to get to the Bible? You better believe it and you know we will. Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 46. This is Mary's response to Elizabeth's words. Mary responded, oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. Now, the New Testament, as you know, is written in Greek, and there's an interesting word here. I want you to go back and circle it or find it. It's the word lowly, or it says lowly servant girl. It's the word tapenos, and tapenos simply means lowly or humble. It actually can mean the lowest of the low, but it refers figuratively, figuratively to an inner lowliness. It, it refers to a person who has humbled themselves, and they see themselves in the hands of God as usable, but they don't think of themselves. In fact, I, I love this quote C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking of yourself less. Or, or it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It, it doesn't mean that you, to be humble, you have to say, well, I'm worthless and I'm a nobody. No, you, you may have felt that and the world may have told you that and you may have felt marginalized, but you can say, I am of infinite value and infinite worth in the hand of God who loved me, but I'm just not going to think about me. And you see, we begin to see how God had moved in Mary to bring her to a place of joy because he was going to use her. That's humility. And humility for you and me is this tapenos that we would say, I'm going to live my life not in a self-reliance, but in a God-reliance because self-reliance always exalts a person. And uh, trusting in God will always humble us, but then use us. Joy is not at all about being happy, but about knowing who you truly are and living into it. When you know that you are secure in Christ, when you know that Christ has redeemed you, then you begin to live in that. And it's not about the happiness of the, the circumstances around you. Joy is an inner attitude that comes from the confident expectation that God's at work. Mary saw that and began to sing. Elizabeth said, oh, how blessed you are. God has done this thing. And immediately she began to see that God had a plan and a purpose for her life. And that brought her, say the word with me, joy. Say it with me. Joy. Say it one more time. Joy. We hardly ever use that word. We talk about happiness and we talk about things that, that bring us enjoyment, but we very rarely live in a place that's joyous. We very rarely discuss or talk about being joy-filled. Now, you need to understand this. Mary has no reason to be joy-filled from her outer circumstance. She's from the wrong side of the tracks, if you will. She's a nobody because she's a, a young teenager. She's pregnant. She is a, a woman, and because of that and that culture, that would have put her in first century Palestine in a different place. She's from a town, Nazareth, that's not even listed in early lists of Galilean cities. There are no roads that go in and out of Nazareth in that day, only pig trails. There's just little paths. Literally, there were probably no more than 200 people that lived in Nazareth at that time. And they lived in the cheapest form of housing possible. Most of the people lived in caves or some of them had actually come to the place of beginning to chisel out some of those rocks and building up from the caves. They lived as poor and meager people. Now, this, this meant that she was a, a nobody. Let me show you a home in Nazareth, if I can, kind of what it would have looked like. This would have been a wealthier home in that day. They would have built up from rocks out of the caves. In fact, just a couple of years ago, archaeologists believe that they have found the home of Jesus. Now you'd say, well, how could we know that? Well, if 200 people lived in the city of Nazareth, 
about a century later in the second century there was a church that was built on top of a site and now there's a convent to this day that's there and they began to excavate because why in the world would they build a church on any other house but the house of Jesus so I don't know if it is or not but I can show you a picture of the one that they think is it this is underground down in a cave and they're continuing to do archaeological study in fact, in January of 22, if you want to go and see this, we're headed back that way. But as we think about Nazareth, this place that is so tucked away, it was so insignificant. Now, let me show you a map really quick. Some of you are saying, Pastor, why are you doing this? I want to show it to you over and over again. Nazareth is at the very top. This is Israel, and Nazareth is at the top. Just beside it is the Sea of Galilee, okay? That little body of water. So Nazareth is up in the, the northern region. It's lush and green. It's more arid down toward the bottom. Let me show you the Jordan River that flows down, and it flows down into the Dead Sea, and then let me show you Jerusalem. Jerusalem is circled there. I just want you to get to see this. Um, it's important for you to see we're talking about 75 to 80 miles from Galilee down the Jordan River. The Mediterranean Sea is on the far, far left. You can see that there. Uh, and so there, there's very, very far, uh, a very short distance. Everybody look this way. There's only about 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea to Nazareth. There's only about 10 or 12 miles from Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee. It's this narrow sliver of land. And this is where we're talking about all of these things happening. Now, just northwest of Nazareth is a town called Sepphoris. Sepphoris was an amazing city. It was the crown jewel of the Galilee. It was a Decapolis city. Folks, it is amazing to think about Sepphoris. They had a, a stadium that would seat 9,000 people. Beautiful, perfect acoustics. It was incredible. Today, Sepphoris is ruins. And today, 70,000 people live in Nazareth. There's roads, major highways that go. In fact, let's go to the next one. I think I've got a picture of modern-day Nazareth, maybe, possibly. I can't remember. Maybe not. Stay there on Sepphoris. Well, as we think about this, here's what I want you to see. There were about 35,000 people that lived in Sepphoris during this day. About how many lived in Nazareth? I've told you. About 200. The people that lived in Nazareth probably worked and served the people that lived in Sepphoris. If you go to Sepphoris, there's lush villas that are there with mosaic tile floors. There's beautiful fountains that would have been there. And again, you can see the ruins of this stadium that is magnificent. Uh, governors would have gone there. Roman officials would have gone there. Sepphoris was an amazing place. And you would say, if God is going to pick somebody from the region of Galilee, surely he would go to Sepphoris. No. He didn't go to Sepphoris. He goes to tiny little tucked away Perry County. No, I'm sorry. He goes to, I'm just trying to make I, nothing disparaging. He doesn't go to the big city of Hattiesburg. He goes to, not even the big city of Laurel. He goes to Soso, right? He goes to a community out in the middle of nowhere. And he picks this little girl of no report, but she found favor with God. You see, God lifts the lowly. It's amazing to me to think. You would say, God, I can't believe you didn't go to Nazareth. I mean, to Sepphoris. Why would you go to Nazareth to find a woman that would play the most important role in all of human history to give birth to the Christ child? You might even remember the story about Jesus when he was baptized. And they, uh, Peter and the others said, we found the Christ. And Nathaniel says, really? Who is he? And he said, it's Jesus from Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say? Nazareth? Can anything good come from Perry? I mean, from Nazareth, right? Again, no offense. Don't take any. He just says this small little place that nobody ever really thinks about. And God said, that's exactly where I'll go. The idea that Mary was sort of like this little Christmas tree that Charlie Brown would pick, he said, it needs me. And God needed Mary, not that God needs anything, but God was playing out his redemptive story and he used the lowly to bring forward the Christ child. And think about this. 
It's such an important part of the Christmas story that you sometimes miss, and I miss if we run over this. You have Mary and Joseph from Nazareth, but nine months later, when it's time for her to give birth, they have to go back because of the order of the, the emperor to go and be taxed and to be counted in the census. And so they go to Bethlehem, the city of David. In this place, we learn the hotels are all full. Now, this was not uh, an Indigo or a Marriott. There were no such places. There were not inns as such this was probably a family place of his lineage and they said there's no more room but you can stay in the cave below where the animals stay you see that picture in Nazareth they would build up finally because now we don't have to live with the animals anymore we can live above them we'll bring them in at night and they brought them into that place and she gave birth to the Christ child we'll come to that in the next two weeks but think with me not only was Mary in this category with Charlie Brown's tree and with Rudolph who was chosen, made fun of and marginalized but then chosen. Not only was Mary in this sort of off the, to the side, lowly category, so was Joseph. You see, people didn't build with a lot of wood and the word carpenter that's used for Joseph meant that he actually built with wood, probably maybe with some stone. He wasn't a stone mason for sure, but he was a tecton and a tecton was a carpenter. He probably made handles for farm implements. He may have made doors or, or tables, but he, he just worked. There was a word, an architecton, sounds like architect, an architecton was a master tecton. Joseph wasn't even that. He was just a tecton. He was just a common laborer. And we see in these common people, God enters in with Mary and Joseph, giving birth to the Son of God in a terrible, wonderful, humiliating, and beautiful Christmas scene with all the animals. Max Lucado asked the question in pondering, do you think that the food trough was still wet with saliva from the last cow that had eaten from that place? Do you think that those swaddling cloths were still damp with the dew of a musty cave where they were? What do you think was going on in the hearts and the lives of all these people? And we come to that place and Mary just ponders them all in her heart. I want you to see that in this place, as inconsequential as they were as people and inconsequential as the place was where it was born, if Jesus was born in Hattiesburg today, he would not be at the birthing center at Forest General or at Merritt. No, he would probably be in that homeless encampment on Highway 49's Walmart back in the woods. Or he would be born in a corner down by Christian services. Or who were the people that first heard? It was the shepherds out in the fields. Now, what do we know about shepherds? Good reputation or not so good? Help me out. Terrible reputation. They were smelly and they played with the animals so they were unclean and they were outside. And this was the night shift of shepherds and they didn't even own the sheep. They were hirelings that just went out there to watch so that the owners could sleep. And God came to them. I don't believe that God would walk into the middle of a worship service at Hardy Street Baptist Church or any other church and make this angelic announcement in today's society. No, I think he would find maybe a group of homeless people somewhere or possibly some people that are at an AA meeting. He would find people that are disenfranchised and lowly and on the outskirts because that's what he did the first time. And the angels came and spoke to the shepherds and said, come and see this good news of good tidings for all. Who does God invite first to see this miraculous sight? A teenage girl. And then the story spreads to the lowly. I hope more than anything else, are you getting a picture that God is interested in the downhearted, the downtrodden, the outcast, the marginalized, the insignificant? We find it all throughout Scripture. When God wanted to birth a nation, he goes to Abraham and to Sarah, this aged couple that could not have children, and he says, that's the perfect place to bring life from a womb. When God chose, it, uh, chose someone to deliver his people out of Egypt, who does he choose? You would think he would rise up, maybe somebody of Pharaoh's status. No, he raises up a stuttering goat herder from Midian in the middle of nowhere, Moses. 
when God chooses a king to lead his people and he sends Samuel to Jesse's house and he says pick from Jesse's sons a king oh that one looks great and he looked at the strongest and the most handsome and he looked at the most capable and one by one God said that's not him that's not him and all the way down the line they bring in the youngest the runt of the family this one who's been out tending the sheep and a shepherd boy named David becomes the king God lifts up the lowly. I don't know if you're like me with this. Any of you ever watch sporting events where you don't even have a dog in the, the fight? I mean, you, you really don't care about either one of the teams. Who do you normally root for? The underdog. Why? Because it's an improbable or impossible story, and you root for the underdog, and you cheer because... I think that there's something about that in the heart of God. God roots for underdogs. And so maybe if you were bullied in school or maybe if you were uh, marginalized or you've been in some way ostracized at work, recognize that God has got you in a position where he can use you greatly because he sees potential when we see brokenness. All of this comes to a unique place. Mary, her words are summarizing God's work in the Hebrew Bible when she says this. We read them earlier. God has lifted up the lowly and filled the hungry with good things. Well, Charlie Brown brings the tree back and the friends laugh at him and they say, why would you ever do that? And you need to know this. Some people will make fun of you in life for things that you do. And this is the heart of God. That even when they turn their backs on you, that following God always leads to the victory. You plus God is always a majority. And this simple little virgin teenager would become the most blessed of all women that we could understand. That's what brings Mary joy. She hasn't even told Joseph, but her heart rejoices that God has chosen her. Now, let me, let me kind of begin to wrap this up. I want you to see that good news is not always good to everybody. Good news is not always good for everybody. What good news comes to Mary and the shepherds and the lowly and the tapenos and the, the, the world's marginalized, we find in the rest of the Magnificat was bad news for other people, those that weren't so lowly. Listen to this part of Mary's song. It should be on the screen. It says this, His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. You see, what was good news for Mary is horrible news for those that are proud and haughty. And so here's the question this morning. Are you more like Mary or are you like the others? You see, in our extravagance, you, you realize half of the world's population lives on $2 a day. We spend double that on coffee almost any given day that we want to. For those of you that are addicts like me, hi, I'm Scott, and I like to drink coffee. But we are wealthy by the world's standards. And if we're not careful, our hearts will be drawn away from the Lord because we will begin to feel entitled and we will begin to feel proud. And it was Mary's lowliness that God recognized and God has torn down the proud. And the good news is this, that you cannot come to God on your own, that you must humble yourself and recognize that Jesus is the only way. Amen? And as we think about that, the Apostle Paul described this over and over again. In fact, it's interesting to me. He doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. He says that money is the root of all sorts of evil, that many who have sought after it have pierced themselves through with many pains. And I want you to see that in the midst of where we are right now, we better begin to utilize everything that God's given us to lift up the lowly. The soil in our hearts needs to not be like the soil that, that sprang up and choked out the seed with weeds. We're to live in harmony with each other and not be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. That's what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans. I, I want to take you to one more place. It's in the book of James. And it says simply this, and God gives grace generously, but God opposes the proud he gives grace to the humble Reese if you'll skip over to about 10 just go to the next one it should be there 
God gives grace to the humble, or grace generously, and he opposes the proud. Let's go to one more. The Bible says there, James tells us, humble yourself before God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Come close or draw near to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Here's where I want to go. As you think about the rest of it, all of this centers around our heart attitude toward God. Hardy Street Baptist Church, listen to me. Those that are online, listen to me. God desires that we would humble ourselves before him, recognizing that he will exalt us, that he will draw near, that this humble Mary was the one to whom he visited. Emmanuel, God with us, came to her. And we see that the arrogant Herod in the palace they go a different way and go away from him and move him away from the Christ child and today your heart attitude may be moving you closer to God or farther away and it's not just about what you do but it's about what he wants to do through you I have to tell you this that wealth is not in any way evil in and of itself. It's amoral, it's neutral, not immoral, but amoral. God blesses many, many people in Scripture and challenges them to use their wealth for good. And even the wealthy and the powerful can humble themselves. And so during this season of Advent, I want to talk to you very, very quickly about two things. Number one, our Christmas Eve offering. Our Christmas Eve offering, this isn't about money, this is about our hearts. We're going to do a benevolence offering. Do you realize we probably spent more money this year in benevolent uh, giving with families in need and people needing uh, food, and, and we try to do all that we can to vet and share the gospel and to love and to care and to nurture, but there's a great need, and we want to fill those funds that have been depleted so on Christmas Eve I want to challenge you just to give I want to challenge you to come and to give it doesn't have to be a bunch I've had people in the past that have given say to Lottie Moon to our Christmas offering and they said we're going to take every bit of what we would spend on all the Christmas gifts combined and give that much to fund missionaries that may be over the top for you you can't double your output some have said we're going to take whatever the most expensive Christmas gift that we buy and we're going to give that to support missions I want you just to think about lavishly lifting the lowly how can you use what God has given you something that in January you probably won't miss anyway and say I just want to give Oh, that our church would become that kind of a church with that kind of a heart. Now, the second thing is an initiative to bless our mission partners. And in just a little while, we've got a business meeting, and I'll share that with you. But I want to tell you, I am so proud of this church. This church reaches people in the Pacific Northwest. We're reaching people in and through the city of New Orleans through church planters. We're in South Asia and in Central America. We're touching lives and hearts through missionaries and mission partners, and you have been so faithful to give. We have almost 9,000 missionaries worldwide through our International Mission Board and our North American Mission Board. And one of the things that you and I do is that we lift the lowly. And I believe that 10,000 years from now, you're going to meet somebody that's from Nepal or from India you're going to meet somebody that's from Idaho or Montana and they never knew you this side of heaven but the money that you gave and the prayers that you prayed and the humility that you exhibited that led you to think not of yourself but of others bless the world and they're there because you faithfully gave here amen that's powerful so don't lose sight of this I know that it's easy for us to be worried about COVID and it's wor easy for us to get worried about the things that are going on in our lives let's be tapenos let's be lowly and say I'm going to be humble of heart three quick words that I would give you this is the challenge of today number one be humble be humble scribble it down Humility doesn't mean you think you're woe, woe is me, I'm a, a worm in the dirt. No, it means that you just don't think of yourself. You're usable in the hands of God because Mary's words were his lowly servant. Number two, be thoughtful. Why don't you look for ways to bless people over the next couple of weeks? We ought to do this all the time. But Christmas somehow brings out the sense of generosity. I'm not saying overextend yourself. I'm not saying run up a bunch of debt. But I'm saying be creative. If you need to give a gift that's handmade, if you need to write a card or, or just love somebody in some unique way, be humble and then be thoughtful. And I'm not just talking about your friends. There are homeless people in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. There are people that sleep in the cold. There are people with great needs. One of the 
things in our initiative that we're going to give to our mission partners is to support what's going on at Christian services. They're still feeding almost 700 people a day, every single day, week in, week out, and praying that God would provide. We better give to that. Because if they weren't there, what a hole would be left right here in our community. And it's not they and us, they are us. These are brothers and sisters that have chosen to be tapenos. We need to be that. Be humble, be thoughtful. Number three, be generous. Be generous. If the legacy of my pastorate here at this church is nothing else, I pray that it would be that I taught our people, our church, to live with open hands. If we live with closed hands and closed fists, God can't put anything else in them. But we live from the fingertips and say, God, you own everything and whatever you give me, I can give away and not miss because I know with an open hand you'll continue to be my provision. And that's what God does. He goes to tucked away places like Nazareth, not Sepphoris. He picks a woman like Mary, not a king riding in with a a glorious army of angels behind him. No, he picks a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem to be the savior of the world you know what that does for me it gives me joy you see I said from the beginning that a key to joy is lifting the lowly not that you pat yourself on the back and say boy I feel better that I gave a little money here or there no but it moves you to a place where your heart is beating in rhythm with the heart of God amen God lifts the lowly, and we can too. The beauty is it comes both ways. He gives you joy, and then he uses you to spread joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this day, and thank you for our time. I pray your blessings upon it. God, thank you for all that you have done in our church family. God, I pray that even this morning that the invitation would be very simple and clear, that each person here would evaluate their own heart, their own life, and they would say, have I been and am I being humble? Am I being thoughtful? Am I a generous person or am I stingy? Am I fearful or am I faith-filled? And God, we would repent of those sinful attitudes and we would rejoice with great joy. We We would give with cheerful hearts. We would go with gladness. In Jesus' name, amen.